Isn't it wonderful to um, get together and praise the Lord? Thank you, worship team. Thank you, praise God. They such, do such a good job. Thank you, Jerry and Sue, for coming back. Um, you know what? Uh, my name is Bill, and I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm a, a blessed man. And so are you, man or woman, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, I, I look out here and I see so many answered prayers. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And um, it's so neat to see Barb out there with her family. You know, thank you. It's, um, you know, people with their grandkids and kids and um, 40 years for Bob and Stacy putting up with each other. <laughs> Praise God. We just have so many answered prayers. And, you know, thank God for that. I'm going to read scripture. Um, and, and, then, and then pray. I just have to tell you just one other thing. I won't be up here long, but, you know, I, I did a substitute teaching for um, elementary kids this morning, and it's a blessing. It's truly amazing how Donna was a helper. I don't know how Donna, how blessed you were, but it was truly a blessing, you know, to, to see their faith and to come alongside of them and pray for them and, and to teach them about God. It truly is an honor and a blessing, and I, I just want to, uh, you know, thank God for that. For that opportunity. I'm going to read from John 14, 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you will believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim over me, but I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being our God. Lord, you are a loving and a powerful and faithful God. You loved us so much as you sent your Son to die for me and die for us, Lord. And, and Lord, you are in control, and I thank you for that, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I, I confess that you know, I should be running to you more, Lord, that I should be more grace-filled, Heavenly Father. Lord, you are full of grace and truth, and so many times it's easy, easier to hang on to the truth and be judgmental in this world that is so judgmental. And, and may, may we also have the grace that goes with that truth. And Heavenly Father, I, I thank you. I thank you. There are so many, so many things to praise you for. The air that we breathe, Heavenly Father, the, all the gifts. Lord, you are faithful whether I am or not, Lord. I, I thank you for pastor's health, Lord. Pray for his continued health, Lord. And I, I thank you for the people here this morning that we can just celebrate and, and, and grow closer to you, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I, I pray this week for Moms Rally. I thank you for Rebecca and the leaders, Lord, and the other ladies that just love on the moms and the kids. And That is so important, Heavenly Father. Just protect them. I, I pray for continued protection for North Shore, Lord. Pray for the ministries here. I pray for workers, Lord, for, for all the for all the ministries, Lord. I pray for the ladies in, or the people in nursery now and in Roots, Lord, that you would just bless them and the kids, Lord. And Lord, I, I pray that we would know your will and do it. I pray that we would love as you love us. And I pray for the time with um, Pastor Lord that we would just 
our hearts would be open, that the Holy Spirit would be here, and that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, man. Thanks, Bill. We continue working through Jesus' farewell discourse. Some people call it the upper room discourse. It's in John chapters 14 through 17. Jesus is meeting with his disciples just hours before his crucifixion. In our text that Bill read, Jesus is again reassuring his disciples who are frightened. And they're frightened because he had announced to them that he would soon be leaving them. And the message of assurance that Jesus gives repeatedly in this discourse to his disciples in the upper room is that, yes, he is going away, but in his absence the Father will send the Helper, the Comforter, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, to actually live in them and minister both to them and through them. So that's how he's giving them reassurance. And these reassurances that Jesus gives to his original disciples are also applicable and encouraging to us because any sincere believer knows that it is simply not possible to live the kind of life or to do the kind of ministry that Jesus persistently calls us to without massive infusions of supernatural help through the Holy Spirit. So in the text that Bill read, I find four words of assurance for us. All these words of assurance are rooted in the Holy Spirit, His coming, and His ministry to the church. The first word of assurance is 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the first assurance from Jesus is that the Holy Spirit will teach us how to live and how to minister for Jesus. The Holy Spirit will teach us how to live and how to minister for Jesus. First, notice the Holy Spirit, the helper who encourages, who strengthens, who advocates before the Father for us. He will come, he says, in my name. Now, that's not a throwaway phrase. It's really important that Jesus says that he will come in my name. The fact that the Spirit was sent by the Father in Jesus' name is another way in which Jesus is so tightly connecting the ministry of the Spirit both to Him and to the Father. And it's crucial that we see that tight connection. This tells us, among other things, that the main lesson the Spirit teaches us, broadly speaking, about living, about ministering, is all of our lives and all of our ministries are to be done in His strength for the glory of Christ. So let's briefly do just some review thinking about how the Spirit's ministry to Jesus is like the Spirit's ministry to us. We saw last week that just as Jesus came in the Father's name to do His works through Jesus, so will the Spirit come now in Jesus' name to do Jesus' works through his people. When Jesus was incarnated, that is when he came in the flesh, the Father was sending, Jesus was ministering, and the Spirit was empowering. Now God continues to incarnate himself or come in the flesh through his church, the body of Christ. And it's Jesus who is sending, the church is ministering, and once again, the Spirit is empowering. 
Jesus did not independently do His work. He came to do the works of the Father through the Holy Spirit. Likewise, God's people are not here to do our works. We're here to do the works of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You hear this? We need to hear and we need to take into our hearts, not just our minds, but into our hearts, this amazing parallelism between Jesus' ministry and the power of the Spirit and our ministry and the power of the Spirit, why Jesus did what he did and why we are to do what we do. Jesus ministered in his Father's name because he came to represent the Father. We minister in Jesus' name because we're representing, we're incarnating Jesus. And both Jesus and the church minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's take it one more step. Everything Jesus did was ultimately about the Father. He said this over and over again. One, to glorify the Father by showing the world what the Father was like. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But two, he glorifies the Father to reveal his own love for him. That's what he says in this, in this text. All that was empowered by the Spirit. Everything the church does is about Jesus. To glorify him by showing the world in the power of the Spirit what Jesus is like. And to reveal our love for Jesus through our obedience to him. As we do that, the glory goes first to Jesus, but it also redounds back or greatly contributes to the glory of the Father. Now that set of truths about who we are and why we're here is absolutely essential to have in the very center part of our hearts if we're to live dynamic, supernaturally empowered lives. And it's because it forces us to remain vertically oriented toward God in a world that is constantly pulling us to be horizontally oriented or self-centered. It's so easy for us to live the Christian life as if it were simply a lifelong religious assignment that we've been given. Okay? That way of looking at the Christian life is doomed to either bring pride and self-sufficiency if you think you're doing well on this assignment, or great frustration and self-hatred if you think you're not doing well. What Jesus is teaching here in the upper room is so different than that, and it's vitally important because this parallel reality between Jesus and his mission and us and ours, both powered by the Holy Spirit, reminds us that he intends all of our lives to be about him. Okay? The works that we do are his works, not our own. The power that we utilize is the Spirit's power. And the Spirit's role in us as he empowers us in life and ministry is to make much of Jesus. Our motivation for doing what we do is not our own glory or to feel good about ourselves. It's for the glory of Christ. See, this keeps us centered in God when we think like this, when this is at the center of our understanding of what it is to be a Christian. This teaching on the coming of the Holy Spirit reminds us how utterly God-centered the Christian life is, as the Bible teaches us. We are not autonomous in any way. We're not self-ruling or self-controlled in any way. We're sent by God. We're empowered by God to bring glory to God by revealing God. The life is, of Christian is completely and very tightly orbiting around God. When we live like that, we have power. Because when we're God-centered, when we're all about God, the Holy Spirit says, yay, I'm for this. 
because the Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. Tim Keller says that the Holy Spirit is like a teenager who's got pictures of Jesus all over his room. That's what he's about. So when we come to him and we say, I want Jesus, I want Jesus to be made much of, I want Jesus to be revealed, I want to do the works of Jesus in your power, the Holy Spirit says, I'm on board with that. I'm there. Jesus gets to the heart of this later on in the discourse when he says in chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit, verse 14, he will glorify me, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, the Spirit's role is to lead us to live lives and do works that reveal and glorify Jesus Christ in our context and to empower us to do them. Now, for the original disciples, that meant that the Spirit would be bringing remembrance to what Jesus had personally taught them in the three years that he was with them. For us, we've never walked literally with Jesus for three years, so it works a bit differently. For us, the Holy Spirit teaches us how we're to live, how we're to minister for Jesus, mainly as he illumines, he makes clear to us, he makes real to us the Spirit-inspired Word of God. That is how we, 2,000 years after Christ, can experience Jesus speaking directly to us. He also brings to our remembrance specific truths from the Word of God when we need them. That's what he does. So the Spirit will prompt us to minister to those both in the church and outside the church through the Spirit-inspired Word of God, the Bible. That's why if we're to glorify Jesus, we must all our lives work to master the book. Understanding all that helps us to know how to pray God's will for us. This should be at the center of our prayer life, something like this. Father, thank you that as you sent the Spirit to me so that I can glorify your Son, Jesus, as you do through the Spirit, reveal what Jesus is like by living his life and doing his works through me. Thank you that this is just what you did when Jesus revealed what you were like as you did your works through Jesus by the Spirit. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to others through me. First, reveal him through me as by the power of the Spirit I continue his supernatural ministry. But God, also reveal Jesus through me by the fruit of the Spirit that I might manifest his supernatural character. Do all of this, Father, so that by the Spirit Jesus would be glorified and you would be glorified. That is big picture Christianity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. If we stray too far away from that, we're going to get off. This is what it's about. If that kind of prayer is not consistent with the desires of our heart, something is way out of whack. Because it reminds us that God sent the Holy Spirit so that our lives would be all about Jesus. His revelation, His glory, His power, His ministry, manifesting His character. As we regularly think that way, as that becomes the center of our lives, as that becomes the focus of our prayers, it reminds us we're not here for us. Our lives are not about us. That's not why we're here. It also helps us remain dependent upon the Spirit to accomplish that utterly God-centered purpose. Finally, it reminds us that all three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, are impassioned about 
and are involved in fulfilling the purpose for our lives. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are are impassioned about and involved in fulfilling the purpose for our lives. In light of all of that, we know we're moving towards spiritual health when our biggest desire could be expressed by saying, Oh, Father, give me a passion for Christ. An all-consuming, a life-transforming, a mission-shaping passion for His glory, His name, His fame, here and to the nations. Cause Your Spirit to impart to me the Spirit's own passion for Jesus, that I might reflect His passion for the glory of Christ. If you're praying prayers like that, if that represents the desire of your heart, you're on the right path. If that's foreign to you, you've got a problem. A second word of assurance is in verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is, of course, a very comforting verse. But it's even more comforting when we understand what Jesus means by this peace that he leaves. For us, peace might mean the feeling that you get when you spend a relaxing day on the lake with your family. That's not at all what Jesus means here. Anyone can have that kind of peace because it's rooted in your circumstance, okay? All things considered, a peaceful setting can produce peaceful feelings in most of us. The peace that Jesus is talking about here, however, is not dependent on our circumstances at all. This kind of peace, which is his peace, okay, it's his peace, the very peace that he had when he was on earth, that can rule our hearts in the darkest hour. This is the same peace that Jesus showed throughout his passion. That's when it's most impressive. You ever noticed that when the soldiers came out to arrest him, And only Jesus, of all the people there, only Jesus knew what that meant for him. You ever notice that as everybody else is drawing swords and screaming and running for their lives, Jesus is in the center of it all in utter control. He's calmly telling Peter to calm down, put his sword down. He calmly reattaches the ear of Malchus, almost in a matter-of-fact way. He calmly queries the soldiers about why the Jews were arresting him at night in that garden when he's out teaching all the time in the midst of them. He's the picture of peace and tranquility. He's the calm eye of the hurricane in the midst of this demonically inspired storm of evil that is rushing around him. The peace that he promises us through the Spirit is that peace. That same peace. That's the kind of peace Jesus had. And that peace is rooted in what the Old Testament calls shalom. Now the Greek word here is not shalom, that's a Hebrew word, but every time you see peace in the New Testament, that understanding is rooted or it's embedded in the Old Testament understanding of shalom. A second word of assurance from the Father sending the Spirit is the Holy Spirit will give us a comprehensive sense of well-being grounded in God's presence with us. The Holy Spirit will give us a comprehensive sense of well-being grounded in God's presence with us. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about peace. That's a basic understanding of the peace that Jesus says he's giving. And literally he says, I bequeath this peace to you. Bequeath. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is your inheritance. And I'm I'm giving it to you. You're the heirs and this is part of your inheritance. My peace 
It's there for you. I'm giving it to you. Okay? In addition to this peace not being dependent upon our circumstances, let me give three more very quick truths about what this peace looks like that Jesus gives. First, the kind of peace that Jesus gives is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. In other words, this is not simply an absence of anxiety. Okay? Like, I'm not worried about it. Shalom also gives us a sense of personal security, a sense of personal completeness and wholeness, this comprehensive sense of well-being. That's what shalom is. This is the sense that all is right with you and all is right with your world through the Holy Spirit, even when all the circumstances are screaming at you that nothing is right with you and nothing is right with your world. Second, this peace that Jesus gives is dependent upon God's presence with us. This is really important. The reason Jesus promises his peace in this context is because he's promising his presence with the disciples through the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus' peace with us through the Spirit because we have Jesus with us through the Spirit. This is not some sort of mystical, ethereal peace that kind of settles in. No, it's there because Jesus is with us. If we really believe this, that Jesus himself, the Lord of the universe, were with us as it were standing right next to us, there would be no reason for us to fear anything if we really, really believe that's where he was. If we needed protection, Jesus is right there to give us his invincible protection. If something happens to us, it's because it's good for us, because Jesus is here. It went through his filter before it got to us. If we need courage, Jesus is here to reassure us that all will be well. Whatever we need in that moment of crisis or trauma, Jesus, who by His Spirit is here with us, is far more than able to take care of whatever is happening. The peace is objective because it's rooted in the fact that Jesus is with me. And the Spirit gives us the assurance that Jesus is here. And that's the ground of our peace. Third, this peace, gives Jesus, this peace Jesus gives has been purchased through God's work, through the gospel. It's been purchased for us through God's work in the gospel. This is what Paul means in places like Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we can have this shalom is because through the gospel of Christ's blood and forgiveness and reconciliation with God that it brings we can enjoy harmony with God. He's not mad at us anymore. He's on our side. He's standing with us. Because Jesus purchased our peace with God through his suffering on the cross, it can never be taken away from us. Now, we can forfeit it and not experience it if we're walking in unbelief and not faith, but the purchased peace of Jesus is always with us. The question is, are we accessing it by faith? That means that even when we're in the times of great trial, the peace of Christ, not anxiety, not worry, that can rule in our heart. Paul tells us in Colossians, and let the peace of Christ, same thing, and let the peace of, peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Someone who has the peace of Christ operating in their life, that's a thankful person. This peace is something we have to say 
We have to let, he says, let the peace of Christ rule. We have to permit, we have to allow this peace to rule in our heart. It doesn't just happen automatically by osmosis. And what triggers this supernatural peace is faith in the goodness and the power and the sovereign promises of God. That's what initiates the peace of Christ. That's when we feel his presence with us. This peace is not simply the absence of anxiety, as we said. In the midst of trial, we actually have this calming sense of fellowship and security, and it's reigning in our hearts. If we're not walking with the sense of peace that Jesus gives us, then we're not walking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, because one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, and that peace is the very peace of Christ. A third word of assurance we see in John 14 that's rooted in the coming of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit will give us a selfless love for Christ that places His glory ahead of our own comfort or survival. Part of what the Holy Spirit does is He gives us a selfless love for Christ that places Him above our own interests, above our own comfort or want for survival. This is implied in verse 28. Don't miss this. This is important. It's implied through the negative example that these disciples give who do not yet have the Spirit. Listen to this. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus is saying something very powerful here. Last week we saw the airtight connection that Jesus makes between our obedience and whether we love him or not, right? Now, if you walked out of here a bit discouraged and wondering if you really love Jesus, you might take some heart or comfort from the fact that in verse 28, he clearly implies his disciples don't love him either. He says, if you loved me. Okay, if someone comes up to you and says, if you love me, your natural response was, are you saying I don't love you? That's exactly what he's saying. If you loved me. So he's saying to his disciples, you don't love me either. And these men had left everything they had to follow him. So what does he mean here? We know he's communicating that they don't love him because he says, if you did love me. Because if you did love me, what he's saying is you would have rejoiced and been happy for me because I'm going into the presence of the one I love, the one who is greater than I. I'm going to my Father. If you loved me, you would have been thrilled for me. That tells us that not loving Jesus is a matter of degrees. Okay? These disciples loved Jesus in the abstract. They did. In John 21, just a few chapters later, after his denial, Jesus asks Peter if he loved him. And Peter at one point says, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus didn't argue with him. So Jesus does know he loves him. And yet here he says, if you love me, how does that fit together? Well, one implication is if we're not consistently obedient to Jesus, we may still genuinely love him, but our love for him is very, very infantile and incomplete. And our lives don't much communicate love for him. And that's where we should be convicted. Jesus says here that the Father is greater than him. What does that mean? Well, he's speaking about the sense of authority that the Father has over Jesus within the Trinity. 
He's not saying that the Father is greater in the sense that he's divine and I'm not. He's speaking of the inter-Trinitarian hierarchy, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells these men that if they love him, they would have placed his joy above their own selfish desires to keep him indefinitely. Genuine love, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 13, is selfless, it's sacrificial, it sacrifices our self-centered desires for the good of those we love. Instead, these disciples were thinking only about themselves, and Jesus rebukes them for their lack of love for him. It's also true that one reason they were so anxious and not experiencing the peace of Christ is because they were selfishly thinking only of themselves, and that kind of self-focus will always chase away the peace of Christ. If you're thinking about you, the peace of Christ will not be there. The peace of Christ comes when you're thinking about Jesus and how I can glorify him in this situation. That opens the door to the peace of Christ. Another reason we know that Jesus rebukes, that this rebuke teaches us that the Spirit is intent on making us selfless lovers of Jesus is because in the book of Acts, when the Spirit had come, this is precisely the way the disciples lived. In Acts chapter 5, and we could go all over the place, but in Acts chapter 5, the apostles who'd been out preaching in the name of Jesus, they are brought before the Jewish religious leaders and they're strictly charged not to preach in Jesus' name. And in verse 29, the, the author of Acts says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Okay? The Spirit is empowering their boldness and their top priority is transparently not about themselves. It's about bringing glory to Christ by boldly preaching his gospel regardless of any opposition. The Holy Spirit, when we allow his influence to be dominant in our lives, will give us this selfless love for Christ and for his glory, and that will dwarf any concerns that we might have for our own personal safety or recognition or comfort or reputation. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. A final word of assurance rooted in the sending of the Spirit is implied here, and that is the Holy Spirit will give us a confidence that the adversary will not be able to keep us from obeying Christ. The Holy Spirit will give us a confidence that the adversary will not be able to keep us from obeying Christ. Verse 30, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus is telling them that he's not going to be around them for the next several hours because he's going to be wrapped up in everything connected with his passion. He says the reason these events will occur is because the ruler of this world is coming. Now, it's important that we understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. His passion was the final last-ditch effort for Satan to defeat Jesus by attempting to get him to sin. That was the mission all along. That's what the temptations of Christ were about. Satan will literally be coming to him personally in the form of Judas because he's controlling Judas at this point. But Jesus has something very reassuring here. He, Satan, has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. There it is again. He's so about the Father, right? Jesus is reassuring the disciples that what he will suffer in the hours ahead in no way indicates that Satan is in control. 
He says, Satan has no claim on me. Literally, he has nothing in me. Okay? That is, he has no legal right to control or manipulate Jesus because Jesus has no sin for him to latch on to. The only way Satan controls anyone is if he can latch on to sin and use that as an opening into their life. Jesus didn't have that door for Satan. He didn't have any sin. So he says he has nothing in me. There's no way he is in control. He wants his disciples to know that although Satan is involved in his imminent suffering on a secondary scale, it's a secondary cause, he is not running the show. Okay? He's not the primary cause of this. The Father is. The Father just uses him as a secondary cause to accomplish what he wants. Jesus reassures his disciples, that he will endure the suffering at his Father's command so that the world may know that I love him. Again, we see this truth in Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching his great sermon at Pentecost, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, he could have said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Satan used you to kill. He could have said that as well. As Jesus was being abused and tortured, it would have been very easy for these disciples to see this and believe that Satan was in control and he was killing their master against his will. Jesus does not want them to make that mistake, and so he prevents them from reaching that conclusion by saying what he says here. He's saying, this will be Satan's hour. The Father has given him authority over this very short window of time as part of his plan so that I can, in the ultimate expression, show my love for my Father. That's what he's saying. But this is also a huge word of assurance to us because Satan has no claim on a genuine believer either. He has nothing in us, not because we don't have sin, but because if we're walking in fellowship with God, however imperfectly, we've been united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that he does when he saves us. He unites us to Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ's righteousness is our righteousness, and it's why the reason that he has no claim in Jesus means he has no claim in us because we're united to Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus so that Christ's victory over Satan becomes our victory over Satan. Do we believe that? Okay. Another aspect of this victory over Satan is one Paul cites in the book of Colossians. It's very closely related to this. On the cross, Jesus did the work to forgive our sins, and that work, he says, disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Satan. Putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. In forgiving our sins, Paul says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's an absolutely liberating statement. It's glorious. Before our sins were forgiven... The implication is Satan had a legal claim on us. He had a merciless legal power over us through our unforgiven sin and the law that condemned us for those sins. But when our sins were forgiven, his controlling power over us was broken. Just as Satan has no claim in Jesus, he likewise has no claim on those who are in Jesus. 
Just as Satan's power could do nothing to keep Jesus from obeying the Father and demonstrating his love for him, so too are we by the Spirit free from Satan's power to prevent us from obeying Jesus and demonstrating our love for him. There's a great picture of this in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 3, the author presents us with a vision of heaven. It's set in the heavenly throne room, and there are three characters in this vision. The first character is God, the angel of the Lord. He's sitting on the throne as judge. And then there's Joshua, who's the high priest of Israel, and he represents Israel. And the prosecuting attorney preparing to make his case against Joshua is the accuser, Satan. And speaking of God, Zechariah says in verse 1, Then he, God, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angels clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Satan surely must have thought he had an open and shut slam dunk case against Joshua because Zechariah tells us that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That is a polite way of saying it because in the Hebrew it says that his garments were covered with excrement. And if your garments were covered with excrement, that meant you were completely defiled before God and you were unacceptable to him in that kind of wardrobe. However, before Satan can even begin his prosecution of this fat client, so vulnerable, the Lord declares him not guilty. And he says to Joshua that he had taken your iniquity away from you. The reason he does this is, as verse 1 says, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. As the high priest Joshua was representing Jerusalem, and God had chosen his people for something, for his sovereign purposes, and his forgiveness of their sin and his sovereign purposes for them overruled any charge Satan might bring against him and Israel because their iniquities had been taken away. He'd already revealed his will to preserve the Jews by bringing them out of the exile. And through the vision, the Lord is telling us that the exile charred his people. But in his mercy, he'd plucked them from the fire of exile. And he didn't rescue his people out of exile to allow them to be condemned by Satan. In fact, he removes the filthy garments from him and clothes him with his own pure vestments. That is as good a picture in the Bible as what God has done for believers as it relates to Satan and his accusations against us. And that is, as unforgiven sinners, we were covered with the excrement of our sin, making us totally unacceptable before God, standing condemned before him. But through his work on the cross, Jesus has taken away our iniquity. We've been rescued. We've been plucked out of the fire, not of exile, but out of the fire of hell. 
And like Joshua, we too have a sin-caked, filthy garment that has been removed and replaced with a pristine robe of righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. And the reason is, like Joshua, we're part of God's chosen people, his elect people. God has a sovereign purpose for us. And by the Spirit, we might glorify Him, and that cancels out any charge that Satan can bring against us in light of the fact that our sins have been forgiven so that we can live as people who are sovereignly chosen. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ have nothing to fear from Satan. Like Jesus, he has nothing on us because the Holy Spirit has united us with Jesus, giving us the same legal status before Satan that Jesus has. The same legal status that Jesus has. If you this morning have not by faith received Jesus and his saving work for your sins, know this, that you are still covered with your iniquity. He sees you as a person covered with excrement, which is your iniquity. And your iniquity, your sin, is far worse to him than any excrement could be because you're standing before a holy God and you're standing condemned. And if you're here today and you've not received Jesus as your Savior, Satan has a legal right to bring condemning charges against you before the judge. And so come to Christ this morning and receive his forgiveness as one of God's chosen people, as one plucked out of the fire, rescued from wrath to bring him glory. Do that today. When we hear about the incredibly empowering and peace-giving and Satan-overcoming ministry of the Spirit, it's tempting to be discouraged if we aren't seeing much of that in our lives. I would suggest that you take the emotional energy that you would normally use to be discouraged and instead take that emotional energy and pray. Pray for a spiritual revival brought by the Holy Spirit. We can all point to individual causes in our lives as to why we're not living more like Jesus. But David Wells is right when he says the Holy Spirit rests lightly over the North American church. The Holy Spirit rests lightly. His hand is just barely touching the North American church. And if you've gone to some place in the world where the Holy Spirit is resting heavily, you know it's different here. It is different here. And so one of the things that you can pray, that we all should be praying, is for a massive renewal and revival of the Holy Spirit on His church, that the Spirit of God would once again, by His grace, for His mercy, rest heavily on the church so that people would live more and more for Jesus, that we would more and more know the joy of the Lord as we live for His glory, seeking empowerment by the Holy Spirit, doing the works of Jesus in His power, so that he might be lifted up and the Father might be lifted up. So pray that God's Spirit would move a new way in your heart, in your marriage, in your family, at North Shore Church, and in this region, that we might have this peace, that we might experience it, that we might more and more consistently overcome the satanic assaults, that we might repent of our sin. May God give all of us the grace to continually cry out for a new and dynamic move of the Spirit of God for the glory of Jesus and for the joy of his people. Let's pray.
our Father and our God, sometimes it is discouraging when we see the promises and we, we read the book of Acts and we see this quality of spiritual life that seems so different than our own. And yet, God, the, the difference between them and us is your grace because your grace is sufficient for us. And they weren't taking credit for this. They weren't, they weren't morally superior beings. They were sinners just like us. They just had more grace by your Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us grace, that you, Father, would give us the grace to see our sin for what it is, to see, in many cases, our materialism, our love of this world for what it is, and that you, by your Spirit, would give us a hatred for it, that you would cause us to see our own self-centeredness, our own self-focus, and give us a hatred for it, that we would mourn, that we would genuinely feel godly sorrow and be broken and in contrition over our sin, so that, by your grace, in the humility that you provide, we could walk in the power of the Spirit. Father, bring this to us, we pray. Bring it to us individually, in our marriages, in our families, in this church, and in this region, for the glory of Christ and for the joy of your people. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.